in the movie Amadeus. Salieri's telling this story. He's in a as older man in a mental asylum. He's confessing to a priest. And he's telling the story of when he was a little boy. He was at church and he heard the, the music going on and he was just caught up in this existential uh, this experience with God. He just knew that he was made for, for music. And this was what he was in his soul and he was supposed to do this. And so he, he prayed. He said, oh God, would you please make me a wonderfully famous musician? And if you do, I give you my chastity. I give you my, my breath and my mind and my heart and I will live for you. And so as the, as the story's going on, he, he, this is happening. He's becoming recognized as a musician, Salieri, and, and as he composes, they're, they're wonderful and the people began to a- applaud him. And he, he continues to serve the Lord and he is serving uh, poor musicians, giving them free lessons and working very hard. He ends up in the the court of the emperor as his composer in uh, Venice. And and, and everybody, everything is going well for him until the day Mozart comes to town. And when Mozart plays his pieces and his uh, orchestrations and his operas, the people are mesmerized. And they're, this is musical genius. And they look at Mozart and they look at Salieri and they go, they recognize Salieri for the mediocre musician that he is. And he recognizes that too, compared to Mozart. He's, he's nothing. And he's, uh, Salieri's amazed because he sees this gift. It's a gift from God. He comes across some of uh, Mozart's original pieces, and as he looks at them, he's just uh, awestruck. And someone asks him, are they okay? And he says, they're miraculous. He doesn't understand where this, this music comes from. But then he notices that Mozart is not one, he thought, oh, well, Mozart must walk close to God. But Mozart is a vulgar, depraved, pompous, arrogant, womanizer, partying person. And when Salieri finds out that Mozart cheated on his fiancée with this girl that Salieri secretly liked, he, he goes into his room and he takes the crucifix off his wall And he looks at the Jesus on the crucifix and he says, From now on, we are enemies, you and I. And he takes the crucifix and he puts it in the fire. And as he's telling this story to the the, uh, priest as an old man, he says, God betrayed me. I gave him everything. And he betrayed me. When you stop and think about Salieri, he really wasn't living for God he was, wasn't he, living for himself via God. He thought God was the daddy warbucks. God was the sugar daddy. daddy God, he, God was the way to get me what I wanted. Who could give these gifts but God? And who could make me famous but God? And so he was cozying up to God to get God to do for him what he couldn't do for himself. And, and, and when God didn't take that deal, because God never takes that deal, Salary walked. And this is exactly what Job Satan said about Job. Satan said, God, the only reason he's being good is because you're blessing him. But you take away the blessings and you'll see, you'll take away the piety. Well, I think for when I look at myself, I look at my own heart, I think all of us have a degree of salary within us. But how do you eradicate that? How do you get it out? 
of your system. Turn with me, Job chapter 38. Job 38. What we're doing is we're finishing the book of Job today. Now, next week, we're, we're talking about kind of a parenthetical message. How do you respond to somebody out in the world who's holding up suffering as a reason why they shouldn't believe in God? If there's a God, how come? Next week is, how do we respond to that? But this, this week, we're finishing up Job. And if you remember, a little background getting you to 38, after all of Job's stuff got taken away from him, his, his things, his children, his health, he's uh, on the hash, ash heap scratching himself. His friends come to him, remember, remember this? And his friends are, are gentle with him at first, kind of, and they, they suggest that it could be your sin, Job. This all could be happening you know, because your sin. And Job puts on the brakes with that thing immediately. He says, whoa, no. I'm, yeah, I'm a sinner. I'm going 56 in a 55. And I get pulled over. And I get a ticket. And I have all my stuff taken away. And I end up in prison. And I'm on death row. Don't you think that's a bit overkill? And the friends push back a little bit more and say, Job, 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 hang on. I think you're in denial, Job. You've got some sin going on in your heart that you're just not telling us about. Oh, you pretend to be so pompous. We know it's sin, sin, sin. And Job pushes back. And at first when Job pushes back, it's just a longing. He says, I just wish I could meet with God. I just wish I could meet with God. I've got some questions. But then as as the friends push more and they get louder and as God's silence gets louder, Job's request or his longing turns into requests with bitterness attached God, please, would you come down here and talk to me? I need to talk to you. I've got some questions. Well, his friends end up, you know, Job, you're nothing but a lying, deceiving, scumbag person. We know that you're the epitome of wickedness and evil. And so Job pushes back further and says, you know, the only thing broken here is your wisdom and God's justice. And so Job starts to make demands. God, get down here and talk to me. I've got questions for you. Job ends up saying through his whole spiel, challenging God on a couple of points. He says, first of all, either God doesn't care about his creatures, or God simply isn't able to exercise justice. He doesn't know. He, he's, God is ignorant. God is apathetic, or God is ignorant. This is Job's deal. And so he puts out, he says, God, I, he demands two things of God. He says, God, I want an explanation. And God, I want vindication. I want you to tell all these bozos here that this is not about my sin. Thank you very much. I want my name restored back. You know as well as I do this is not about my sin. Fix it. Explanation, vindication. That's his deal. Well, when this whole argument thing with the friends is done, the friends are there exasperated and exhausted uh, because Job is just being stubborn and he's not listening to their great wisdom. And Job is there exasperated and exhausted and they're all hoarse and he's hoarse because he was accusing God of stuff. And they're just there at the end of their rope. Now here's their problem. and This is the whole deal with the book of Job. The first question that Job raised when this thing first started happening was, why? And the friend's problem is that they clamped onto that question. It's a normal question that people struggling will ask, but the friends clamped on that question and they decided to try to answer it. And when you try to answer that question, where it's going to lead you 
is exactly where the friends ended up. Just exhausted, exasperated, no answers into legalism, perhaps. Where that question, focusing on that question, led Job. It led Job into bitterness and theological missteps. And so God's going to come and he's going to say, you can't focus on the why. You've got to focus on the who. You're asking the wrong question, Job. It's not why, it's who. And as long as you're asking why, you're going to be bitter. But if you ask who, you'll get better. That's the deal. It's for us in our suffering as well. If you ask the why, where it's going to go, is it's going to derail what God wanted to do in our life with the pain. It's going to make a mockery of the testimony of God. But if you ask the who, whole different thing. Now, in this life, we're going to have to suffer physically and we're going to have to suffer emotionally. We just will. But we don't have to suffer spiritually. He's given us all things pertaining to life and godliness, everything we need. When we ask why, we're going to suffer spiritually as well. But when we look to the who, when we ask who, we won't. And so, after this is all done, God shows up. Chapter 38. God says, Job, you've wanted to talk to me, huh? And chapter 30, I don't think Job envisioned it going quite like this, though. Chapter 38, verse 1, it says, Then the Lord answered Job out of the storm. And he said, Who is this that darkens my counsel with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man. I will question you, and you answer me. Now, earlier, remember in chapter 9, this thing just started, Job was thinking God would come to him in a storm. He said, even if I summoned him and he responded, I do not believe he would give me a hearing. He would crush me with a storm and multiply my wounds for no reason. Because in the ancient uh, peoples, the storm was a picture of God's judgment and God's anger. And Job just assumed. God was ticked off at me for whatever reason. This is why what's going on is going on. But you know, and I know, the readers... That's not the issue. God was not angry or judging Job on the front end. Now here, 38, God's going to be a little upset. But he was upset because of what transpired during the storm, where Job allowed his focus to go from the who to the, to the why. Look at in verse 1, 38, then the Lord. If you've got a pen, you've got your own Bible, circle that, the Lord. That's a real important phrase because throughout this book, so far up to this point, every time God has been mentioned, the, the word Elohim has been mentioned, which is it's, it's, it's like his title. It's a generic, general, impersonal name for God. But here, when it says the Lord, that's the word Yahweh. That's God's personal name. The only people that he gives his name to, Yahweh, are people he loves deeply. People he's committed to. People he's given to. So in this storm, this is, this is fascinating for me, up to the storm, even when things were good, we know God is Elohim. But in the storm, God comes as Yahweh. Sometimes we only can learn the depths of God in the storm. And so sometimes when the storm is coming, don't think, oh, it's judgment or God is angry. Maybe he's coming to you as Yahweh in the storm. He certainly did for Job. And he says, who, who is this who darkens my counsel? That basically says, I don't know what I'm talking about. Who, who, is this again? Who are you again? What's your name? He says, brace yourself like a man. 
And I will question you and you will answer me. As we go through this, notice what, what God doesn't say. Real important. The one question Job had was, why? Guess which question God never answers. We know, the readers know, chapters 1 and 2 that Job doesn't know, that there's this thing in heaven and Satan and, and God. No. We, we know that none of this really happened because of Job's sin. We know that. And you would think that God right here might come to Job and say, Job, I've been wanting to tell you this for quite some time. I'm really sorry you had to go through all this. You know, there's this thing in heaven and Satan came to me and he said, you know, I couldn't really bless you because if I took, if I gave you the blessings, it's the only reason why you loved me and take the blessings away and I'll take the piety away. And Job, you passed. Good job. He doesn't come to Job and say, Job, one day, 4,000 years from now, in Erie, Pennsylvania, I know you don't know where that is, but it's outside us, and you just need to know, they'll be talking about you, Job. I mean, you're going to be a famous man because of this whole thing. Or, or Job, I'm trying to work character in your life. Don't you love this one? And I'm going I'm to make you something, Job. And this is true. But God doesn't bring that up. God doesn't even try to answer the question, why? Now, Know that God's coming to Job here because he loves Job. Not because he needs to defend himself to Job. I mean, who in the world is Job? This is God we're talking about. He did, so relevant. He's there as Yahweh. He's there because he loves Job. This is all for Job's benefit. And don't you know that if Job needed the why answered in order to be healthy, in order to get over this, in order to, to cope somehow, in order to be spiritually in tune... Don't you think God would have given him that answer? Now, Job was certain he needed that answer. But God knew that you don't need the why answered. Your friends can't answer it. There's no one on earth who can answer it. The only one who can is God, and he doesn't. He says, don't focus on the why, Job. Focus on the who. And so he says... I've got some questions for you. You wanted to ask me some questions. We'll get to those. We'll, yeah, but, but see, I've got to ask you some questions, Joe, because, you know, you're so wise. You understand how the world's supposed to operate and all, and pff, I could use your counsel. And God gets very sarcastic in this text. Not an excuse for our sarcasm. We go, oh, Job did it. Or God did it. God is divine, divine sarcasm. But, but, but he comes out, and God starts with the questions. He says, says, Job, we're not going to start with anything philosophical or existential or just big issues like suffering and stuff. Let's deal with things you see. Because, I mean, that's easier. Let's, let me ask you some of those things first. And so he says, verses 4 through 7, he says, let's start at the very beginning. When, when I created the world, you know, I was really doing the best I can, Job, but I needed some counsel. And so I was looking around for you and I couldn't see you. Were you there, Job? When I built everything, when I got it rolling, could you, were you there? Oh, you weren't there when I started life. This is verses 8 through 11. He says, well, let's look at the sea for a minute. Oh, my, my, my goodness. When I decided to have the land and the water and, and the limits and where they should start and stop, I didn't know what I was doing. And I, I was just I had to make an executive call because I couldn't find you, Job. And so, where were you? Oh, you weren't there. Oh, yeah, I know you weren't there. Where are you, Job? He says, how about let's talk about the dawn, verses 12 through 15. He 
says, isn't it really cool, Job, when the sun comes to you and, and, it's your, and you have to make it come up at the exact time? And if you, or you are off just a little bit, all kinds of stuff is going to go wrong. And so, isn't it really cool when you get to do that, Job? Oh, well, you, you don't do that. Oh, who, who does that? Oh, me. That's right, I, I do that, don't I? So let's talk about the, the, the bigness of everything, Job, because, I mean, you've been everywhere. You have to be to be speaking with such wisdom. I'm sure that you've been down to hell where I, I keep the, the abode of the dead. You've been there, right? And you've walked through the, the bottom of, of the oceans. You know, you've been everywhere, man. Yeah, I know you have, Job. Tell, oh, you've never left us? Oh, I, how can you... Oh, okay. No, that's okay. Well, let's, let's look at the heavens, Job. Let's, let's, let's go look up. And let's remember, I got a question. This has always been a question in my mind. You made light before you made the sun and before you made the stars. How did you pull that off? I've always wondered about that. Oh, you, you didn't do that. Oh, I, I did that. Oh, that's right. That's right. That's right. And snow. Let's talk about snow, Job. He's in verses 22 through 30. This, you must have lived in Erie or something because you know all the us thing. That's right. You, you don't really know. How about frost? And how about the wind? How about the weather? Do you control? You don't. No, you don't, Job. I, I do that. This is verses 31 through 33. He says, Let's look up at the stars. Now, see that one over there? Yeah, no, no, move over a little bit. Yeah, no, you can barely see it squint. Yeah, 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 that one. What's its name, Job? And if you got right up to it, how big do you think it would be? And, and what's it made out of, I wonder? Look around all the stars out there. How many do you suppose there might be? I mean, you put them there. I mean, I'm told that in our galaxy, there's approximately one trillion stars. I don't know who counts these, I don't know, approximately one trillion stars. And that in our universe, there's approximately 100 billion galaxies, each one with one trillion stars. And what's really amazing is Psalm 147.4 says that God brings out each of the stars and calls them by name, which just means, this is poetry, but that God has a relationship with every single individual star. He calls them by name. He made them. He knows everything throughout every square inch of them. Hundreds of trillions, 100 billion trillion stars, numbers we can't fathom. He goes on. He says, let's, let's, let's forget the heavens for a second, Job. Got it. It's crazy. I know. It's just crazy. But, but let's talk about animals because I know you understand animals. You know, you had lots of herds and stuff, more than anybody, and you, you got that down. Let's talk about lions. Oh, oh, you haven't had any lions. That's, that's, that's right. But lions, they have to eat too, Job. And the baby raven has to eat. And, I mean, what do you, what's on the menu for dinner? What are you feeding them? Oh, you just thought they kind of all took care of themselves. No, no, no. Someone has to. I feed them. I take care of them on a regular basis. This is in verses uh, 39, 1 through 4. It says, let's talk about birthing for a minute, Job. Have you ever thought about new life? I mean, the, the wild mountain goats, when they birth, are you, were, you, were you there when they birth? Every wild animal in Pennsylvania or the Alps or the Himalayas or the Andes, when they go hide and they find a place and they birth, are you there, Joe? You need to know, I'm there. I'm like a wild animal uh, uh, midwife. That's what I do. And I make sure that the baby's okay. And that the mom is okay. I, I created the baby in the, the womb of the mom for quite some time. I knew exactly. And You know, what's fascinating about the wild animals, Job, is they haven't done anything good. 
and they haven't done anything bad. But I care for them. I care for that which I've created beyond what anybody can imagine. Just let's, let's talk about the, the wild donkeys for a minute. Uh, the, the, there's lots of wild animals all over the place, Job. What purpose do you think they fulfill? I mean, they don't help you out at all, but so tell me, wh- why did I create them? What is their use? Might it be that all the universe doesn't rotate around you? That I have purposes that you don't know anything about? Is that possible, Job? He says, look at the wild ox. Verses 9 through 12 of 39. Just the wild ox doesn't plow your field, does it? Doesn't plow anybody's field. But he's strong. I made him to do exactly what he's doing. He says, look at the, next he goes the ostrich. 13 through 18. He says, what a stupid, God calls the ostrich stupid. What a stupid animal, Job. I mean, it has no sense. She steps on her egg. She treats her young improperly. She flaps her little wings like she can fly. She's a useless animal, right? She's just useless. Unless I have some purpose. Is it possible that I created her exactly the way she's supposed to be? And you just don't know of it? Is it possible, Joe? Let's talk about the one animal you have some knowledge of. The war horse. You've had some... And you can control the war horse, can't you, Job? You put the bridle on. You can control him a little bit. Because he has to call the wild thing in his heart. And you have to fight. You have to wrestle with him a little bit. Wait a minute. The one animal out of all the animals in the world, the one that you can control, you can only control a little bit? Really, Job? I thought you knew everything here. He says, this verses 26 through 30. Let's talk about migration patterns. Job, why did the birds fly south? Who told them to do that? How did they figure that one out? Did you, do, did you teach them that, Job? Oh, I taught them that. That's right. What, what God is trying to do for Job is um, little boy, five-year-old kid, goes with his family to Cape Canaveral. He's going to watch a rocket blast off kind of thing. He crosses through the fence somehow, and he, he gets over by the rocket, and he looks up at this thing. And he goes and tugs on the guy's white jacket. And he says, buddy, excuse me, sir. It's a respectful little boy. Sir, you need to know, this thing, there's, it's not going to fly. There's no wings on it. And it, you got to point it straight up. And it's too big. When you look at this thing, it's never going to get off the ground. And plus, you're telling everybody out here that you're trying to send it to the moon. The moon's over there, and you're sending it this way. This is all wrong. It's never going to work. And does the guy with the white jacket, assuming he's a physicist, scientist person, does he say, well, let me talk to you about thrust and gravitational pull and orbits. See, the son, you better get on the other side of the fence. You're going to get hurt. There are things that we're dealing with here that are way beyond your ability to understand. I know you think that you understand what's going on. But what's going on here is way beyond your ability to even figure it out. So you better move aside. That's what God wants Job to see. That Job, your limitations, are you're just not able to grab all of what's going on. And then in chapter 40, and I don't have this on the screen, but verses 6 to 12, 6 to 14. He says, Job, I'll tell you what, you want to be God for a day, huh? You can out-God God. Now I'm not going to ask for a show of hands. But how many of us have thought, if I was God for a day, there'd be some things different? 
There'd be some things changed. Oh, yeah, I've got some bad people that are getting taken care of, and I've got some good people. I'm going to take care of some stuff if I'm God for a day. That's what God says to Job here. It'd be different if you did it. Job, really, because you know better? You're going to out-God God? Says, Job, you're going to exercise a little bit of justice? Just, what if you're wrong? What if you're wrong and you punish someone who shouldn't be punished? Or you're, or you're wrong and you don't punish someone who should? And what if you punish this guy, but he's got all these children who are dependent on him? You're, going to punish, you're not going to punish innocent people, are you, Job? Because you're trying to punish. You can't be God for it. You can't out-God God, Job. And then, then he picks up two more animals. And this is, this is fascinating to me. Throughout 40 and 41, he's just going to talk about two more animals. Um... Ancient cosmology, what the folk believed, is that there was uh, order. This was God's will. This is when God's running the universe. This is the order. It's the way it's supposed to be. There's disorder, and this is evil. This is when it's supposed to be ordered, but, but evil got in and is controlling it all wrong. But then they believed there was a third category, uh, unorder. This was chaos. It's like tornadoes. You know, they're not, they're not good and they're not bad, they're, but they're just out of control type stuff. And, and the, the ancients believed especially that, that the sea was a picture of this chaos. It was, it was a, a scary place and it was anarchy reigned and it was unpredictable and God didn't even get involved with it. It was just a, a, a chaotic sort of thing. Earlier in the text, when Job is arguing, he's, he says... Um, you know what I'm like? I am like one of those animals in the chaos, a chaos creature. One of those people, one of those animals in the deep sea, God doesn't even care. He just throws me to the elements and it's all going crazy and it's all going wrong and nothing makes sense. That's where he has me. I'm like a chaos creature. And so God says, let's look at a chaos creature for a minute. Job, a behemoth. And people have tried to identify behemoth as everything from brontosaurus to a, a hippopotamus and that's not our, our goal and I don't think... God could have been an animal that we don't you know, aware of anymore. But God goes through this whole behemoth thing. And then he says this, chapter 40, verse 23. He says, when the river rages, he, that's the behemoth, is not alarmed. He's secure, though the Jordan should surge against his mouth. He's saying, Job, this chaos creature, when it looks like he's going to drown. And when it looks like everything is going wrong and going against him, he's okay, he trusts me. You only wish you could be a chaos creature. Job, you don't trust me, but these chaos creatures that you liken yourself to, they do. My creation does. And then earlier in the text, Job also said, God is like a chaos creature. God is like one of these people, thing, things, animals in the deep who just are unpredictable and they're mean and they're just scary. That's what God is like to me. And so God goes through. Let me talk about a second chaos creature. He talks about Leviathan. And he says, can you pull in the Leviathan with a fish hook or tie down his tongue with a rope? Can you put a cord through his nose or pierce his jaw with a hook? Will he keep begging you for mercy? Oh, please, please leave me alone. <laughs> It's probably, a, who knows, Nile crocodile, I think, is what they're suggesting. Will he speak to you with gentle words? Please, Mr. Job, don't hurt me. Will he make an agreement with you for you to take him? You know, I'll give uncle, uncle, just, just don't hurt me. If for a slave for life, can you make a pet of him like a bird? Or put him on a leash for your girls? 
Will traitors barter for him? Will they divide him up among the merchants? Can you fill his hide with harpoons or his head with fishing spears? If you lay a hand on him, you will remember the struggle and never do it again. Any hope of subduing him is false, and the mere sight of him is overpowering. No one is fierce enough to rouse him. Who then is able to stand against me? This, Job, you think I'm, I'm like a chaos creature. Well, regular chaos creatures, you know what? You respect. You treat with some fear, and you should, because they'll take your arm off. But what about the one who created the chaos creatures? Where's my respect? Where's my fear that's due me? It's not, it's not that, this, is, this is similar to uh, Lion, Witch, in the Wardrobe. Remember, the, remember this when the uh, uh, daughters of Eve and the sons of Adam go into Narnia for the first time? And they come across Mr. and Mrs. Beaver, and Mr. Beaver's talking about Aslan, the lion, and, and these children had never heard of him before. And so they go, whoa, whoa, a lion, huh? Is he, is he safe? And Mr. Beaver's response is, are you listening to me? He's a lion. Of course he's not safe. But he's good. But he's good. He's unpredictable. He's untamable. You can't. But he's good. And so that's what, what point God is trying to make with, with Job here. You don't understand me like you thought you understood me, Job. You have no idea. And then in chapter 42, then Job replied to the Lord, I know that you can do all things. No plan of yours can be thwarted. You asked, who is this that obscures my counsel without knowledge? Surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. Wonderful does not mean just you know, good things. It's like a wonderful counselor, fearfully and wonderfully made. It's categories beyond me. It's just a lot bigger. I'm a five-year-old kid in the rocket. and the thr- It's just beyond me. That's what he's saying. I, I, I try to talk about stuff that I shouldn't have been trying to talk about. He says, you, you said, listen now, and I will speak, and I will question you, and you shall answer me. My ears had heard of you. But now my eyes have seen you. Therefore I despise, despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. The most righteous man in the world just got godly. He realized that following God was not just about formalized piety, just doing the rules right. Oh, no. He realized that, that God was so much bigger. It's interesting. His, his questions have not been answered. He's never got a why anywhere in there. He's never been vindicated. He's not going to be vindicated. God never told him it's not about your sin. God never told his friends it's not about his sin. But when Job quits trying to answer the why and, and looks at the who, he says, I don't have to understand why. I wish... This is not for me. And I just wonder if there's somebody here who has been hurt in the past huge. Something has transpired. Sailor-ish. Where you've looked at the why. You tried to answer the why. And every day of your life you're working through the why. And you're coming up with nothing. And that's the way it's going to be. If you come up with anything, it's the wrong answer. But... but, but you come up with nothing, and so that makes you bitter. 
I wonder today, God would come to you just like he came to Job in his pain. and said, Job, it's not about the why, it's about the who. You can't understand the why. You trust me. And trusting him. You know what? The bitterness can evaporate. Are all the, can we rewrite history? No. Job is still going to be in a little pain. We're going to show it. But when you try to ask, answer the why, you become bitter. When you look to the who, you become better. Um, just closing this down. Verse 7, it says, After the Lord had said these things to Job, he said to Eliphaz the Temanite, I'm angry with you and your two friends because you have not spoken to me what is right, as my servant Job has. So now take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and sacrifice a burnt offering for yourselves. My servant Job will pray for you. Uh, and I will accept his prayer and not deal with you according to your folly. You have not spoken to me what is right, as my servant Job has. So Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuite, and Zophar the Namathite did what the Lord told them. And the Lord accepted Job's prayer. Job's friends uh, grew that day too. This had to be incredibly humiliating for them. They just spent the last umpteen chapters calling him all kinds of names. And now they've got to swallow their pride and bring their sacrifices to this guy that's emaciated and is, is manifesting every sign of God's disapproval. They have to bring this to him and have him pray for them. And so they, they do. And after Job had prayed for his friends, after Job had prayed for his friends, after, I guess we that after, the Lord made him prosperous again and gave him twice as much as he had before. Now, Job had no clue that he was going to get this stuff back. But still, maybe this is a uh, proof of his repentance to have to forgive that couldn't have been real easy. Pray for his friends. Restore them with God. Verse 11, all his brothers and sisters and everyone who had known him before came and ate with him in his house. They comforted and consoled him. The idea here is as soon as he got sick and stuff, they blew out, they left. They didn't come back to this guy until he got all of his money back. We've all got relatives like that, right? They comforted and consoled him over the trouble that came upon him. Verse 12, the Lord blessed the latter part of Job's life more than the first. He had, and he doubled, he's doubled everything but kids. Maybe double kids is not a blessing. I don't know. He had 14,000 sheep. Six, they are, they are, especially if they're my kids. I got any kids in here today? <laughs> he had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, and 1,000 donkeys. He also had, same amount, seven sons and three daughters. Now, you know that getting new children doesn't replace your old children. There's still pain in Job's heart. still hurt. But this is fascinating for me. It doesn't say a thing about his boys. It talks about his girls. The first daughter he named Jemima, the second Keziah, the third Karen Humpik. Now, nowhere in all the land were there found women as beautiful as Job's daughters, and their father granted them an inheritance along with their brothers. And in ancient genealogy, you never focused on the women, ever. But here he does that. And you never gave the girls an inheritance because they would get married, and, and the money is going to travel with them to somebody else's last name. You keep the money in the family. That's what you do. But maybe Job, I don't know, I just think this is fascinating. All this book in the Bible, right from the beginning, lives within the culture, but still, the gals are, are honored. Fascinating. After this, Job lived 140 years. He saw his children and their children to the fourth generations, and so he died old and full of years. Are you asking today why? You should be asking who. 
if right now life is good, that's great. I mean, you cheer for those times because there will be days when it will be raining and you will be in a situation where you're going to want to ask why. Let's remember Job. At that point, I'm to ask who, not why. Um, Steve Hainer, he's the president of Columbia Theological Seminary. Just this past summer, he was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. And when it became obvious that the treatments just weren't working at all, he wrote on his blog, he said, the cancer continues to have the upper hand. What now seems clear from a purely physical perspective is that in all probability, the remainder of my life on this earth is now to be counted in weeks and months. Everyone's praying, present the seminary, people praying all over the world for this guy, but it's still not working. People were questioning him on this. He adds this in another blog post. He says, many are praying for one of God's big miracles. We are as well. But it is not how God answers prayer that determines our response to God. Did you get that? It is not how God answers prayer that determines our response to God. God is committed to my ultimate healing. But being cured of my cancer may or may not be part of that healing work. One person told me how disturbing it is for her to watch so many thousands of prayers on my behalf and yet to see a minimal of physical evidence of healing. Does God really heal? Does the amount of prayer have any special impact? Honestly, while I understand the importance and logic of questions like this, most of these questions are not ones that are important to me. I truly don't know what God has planned. I could receive healing through whatever means, or I could continue to deteriorate. But life is about a lot more than physical health. It's measured by a lot more than medical tests and vital signs. More important than the more particular aspects of God's work with us is God's overall presence with us. It's not about the why, is what he says. It's God's presence with us. It's God's who. It's the who. God's presence with us, nourishing, equipping, transforming, empowering, and sustaining us for whatever might be God's call to my life today. Today, my call might be to learn something new and rest. Today, my call might be to encourage another person in some very tangible way. Today, my call might be to learn something new about patience or endurance and the identification with those who suffer. Today, my call may be to pull through and through and mull through a new insight about God's truth and character. And he ends his uh, blog post with a quote by Cummings. E.E. Cummings, he says, I thank you, God, for this most amazing day. Such is the heart of somebody going through it who's not focused on the why, but focused on the, uh, the who.